The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Well, our text for today is Romans 6, 12 through 14, uh, but it's kind of the end of a longer section, so I'd like to begin reading in verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 14. So Romans 6, verse 1 says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life that He lives, He lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. For present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be your master. For you are not under law, but under grace. Well, as I've said... uh, the last two messages in this passage, that that this passage really does provide a crucial perspective on the Christian life. And when I was in college, it transformed the the way I understand the Christian life, what it means to be related to Christ and and how we live out our faith. And I hope that that, that all of us will will leave this series uh, thinking in terms of of this passage and, and thinking of the Christian life uh, based on the, the ideas that Paul lays out here in Romans chapter 6. This is so important. But, but to fully appreciate this passage, you, you have to appreciate three tensions that, that, that are come up in this passage that really are crucial to this passage, passage's message. I'm not saying that right. The first tension is between the indicative and the imperative. Now, when we talk about the indicative, we're talking about a truth statement, a true statement in this chapter, particularly about the gospel. And so there are true statements about the gospel that to some extent might seem to contradict the commands that follow or the imperatives. So for example, verse 11 declares the basic truth that all who are in Christ are dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, so we are dead to sin. But then verse 12 turns around and commands us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So how can it be true on one hand that we are dead to sin, but then if that's true, why do we need to be commanded 
not to let sin reign. That's an important tension. A second really important tension in this passage is between what we oftentimes call the already and the not yet. And what we mean by that is, for example, notice the the truth that is true for the Christian in verse 7. Verse 7 says, he who has died, all right, and that's a reference to every Christian. He who has died is freed from sin. So that passage says that I am already freed from sin. But then look at the promise of verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the future in the likeness of his resurrection. So, So how can I already be freed from sin, but not yet in the likeness of his resurrection? That's a good question. And then a third tension in this passage uh, is, is between the fact that spiritual growth is inevitable, but it is not automatic. So, verse 14 promises, sin shall not be master over you. So, so spiritual growth is inevitable. Every Christian will be changed into the image of Christ. But, it's not automatic. It doesn't just happen. And we know that because verse 12 commands us, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. So you, you, you don't just, it doesn't just automatically happen. We have to engage our wills and work hard in the process. So, so, so but that raises the question, well, well, how can I rest in the promise of God that he will change me, but not then become lazy and fatalistic in my approach to spiritual growth? So so these are important questions, and and it's important to note that that none of these tensions are irreconcilable. In fact, the answers to these tensions are are fairly simple if you take the time to to, to really think about what Paul is saying and and make some important connections. But but if you don't take the time to do that, if you're lazy about these issues, you, you can easily develop a very warped view of the Christian life, which will stunt your spiritual growth discourage you, and and frankly, if you're really not careful with these things, you can lose the gospel itself. So so we have to carefully consider how how these tensions work themselves out in this passage, and and so we're going to do that as we walk through uh, verses 12 through 14 today. And so so I'd like to summarize each of these verses with a command. And so first of all, verse 12 challenges us to resist sin's reign. So so look again at verse 12. Verse 12 says, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Now, we're immediately here confronted with with one of these tensions because of the contrast between verse 11 and verse 12, but especially between verse 12 going back to chapter 5, verse 21. So, So look at chapter 5, verse 21. Paul says, So that... As sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, so, so we've got that word reign, which is important both in chapter 5, verse 21, and in chapter 6, verse 12. And it's interesting that that verb, that the verb reign, actually comes from the same root as the noun king. So, so the literal idea is, is that is that sin and grace are pictured as kings which can rule in the life of an individual. And Paul says 
in chapter 5, verse 21, that the reign of grace has overwhelmed the reign of sin and death. And similarly, he says in chapter 6, verse 11, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. But, but if the reign of sin is over, all right, then why does he need to command me to not let sin reign in my mortal body? Well, that's a good question. And so Paul here is clearly assuming in the text that Christians can allow sin to reign in their lives. It's not like you get saved and all of a sudden, sin and temptation just poof, it's gone. No, and Paul wouldn't command us not to let sin reign if it couldn't actually do so, if sin didn't pose a serious threat. So, so I want to be clear today that sin can reign, and I want to emphasize temporarily, all right? Not ultimately, but sin can temporarily reign in the life of a Christian, like a king reigning on the throne of your heart. And notice here that the context of sin's reign is your mortal body. Now, now someday we're going to receive glorified immortal bodies when we go to heaven. But for today, we live in imperfect bodies that are cursed by the fall. Our bodies are weak. And sometimes our bodily desires for, for food and sleep and other things get out of order. Of course, we also interact with the fallen world in our fallen bodies and And then Satan uses our fallen senses to appeal to our fallen hearts. So so there is a constant war taking place in the heart of every Christian. I like how Galatians 5 verse 17 describes it. It says that the flesh or the sin nature sets its desire against the spirit. And the spirit against the flesh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. So just because I am dead to sin does not mean that sin has no influence in my life. No, there is a war taking place. And that war is actually not a sign that you are not a Christian. It's a sign that you are a Christian. Because there's no war in the heart of an unbeliever. There's just sin. And so there is a war in the heart of a Christian. And verse 12 simply warns that this war takes itself out in the context of our mortal fallen bodies. And if we're not vigilant, our flesh can win some major victories. So so verse 12 warns us that we can actually obey sin's lusts. Now again, when we read that word obey, we have to remember that sin is a defeated enemy. You never have to obey sin. I mean, you know, people will say the devil made me do it, and that's a bunch of baloney. It is never true. You can never say the devil made me do it. You can never say your little brother made you do it. You can never say that anyone made you do it. When you, as a Christian, you always have the choice to say no to sin. But, but sometimes, we, we, we don't always remember how evil sin is. Sometimes we forget that it is a tyrannical Lord, not worthy of our service. We also forget our our power to to say no. And so we can submit to a defeated enemy even though we don't actually have to do so. It reminds me uh, just of a a simple little thing growing up on the farm. So so when I grew up on the farm, uh, around a lot of our bigger cattle pastures, we would put up electric fence. And 
An electric fence is popular because it's cheap, it's really easy to put up, and, uh, and it's pretty effective. But the problem with an electric fence is that sometimes the power goes out. Or sometimes uh, a branch or something falls on the fence and knocks the fence out, and so once that power is gone, you know, a single strand of wire on a you know, piddly little electric fence post is not enough to hold a 1,200-pound cow in place. But the reality is, thankfully, oftentimes, you know, the cows, they're scared of that fence, so they don't like spend every moment of the day checking to make sure it's working. So sometimes you can go several hours, quite a while sometimes, before they will ever even realize that the fence is shortened out. And so this big, powerful cow is dominated, it is enslaved by a little strand of wire, even though if they just walk through it, it's not going to stop them at all. And oftentimes, we do the same. Sin has no power over us, but we give it power by our choices. So so instead of using our eyes to read Scripture, we instead gaze on ungodly entertainment. Instead of using our mouths to, to glorify and give thanks to the Lord, we, we complain, we slander, we gossip, and as we do those things with our mouths, we confirm those, heart, those attitudes in our hearts. Instead of using our hear, ears to hear the Word and biblical preaching, godly music, we, we listen to junk and nonsense. We feed our flesh, it grows strong, and we submit to a defeated foe. And so if you do not discipline yourself to godliness... Sin absolutely will bully your heart. Therefore, we have to understand, again, as I said in the introduction, that spiritual growth is inevitable. God will change His people, but it is not automatic. And and that's important. That's important. Because because some Christians will will take the fact that that spiritual growth is inevitable, that God has promised to change His people, and, and they kind of develop almost a fatalistic view of spiritual growth. So, so I don't need to confront sin. I don't need to fight for holiness. You know, what's going to be is what's going to be. So I just kind of sit back and wait for God to change me and see what happens. But, but verse 12 teaches us here that spiritual growth is not automatic. I must apply myself and I must work hard to be godly. And, and in fact... The Bible here, really what Paul does, is he doesn't use the inevitability of my spiritual growth to mean that I can just kind of sit back and wait for God to change me. No, instead, the fact that God will change me should drive me to be motivated, to be inspired to pursue change, because it is possible. I love how Paul sets an example of this for us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. He says there, not that I have already obtained it, and it there is glorification. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Jesus Christ. That's a great statement about the tension between what I am trying to do and what Christ has already done or is doing. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
So what does Paul tell us there? He says, God has laid hold of us. Isn't that an awesome picture? The sovereign hand of God has laid hold of his children. And so in light of what God has done for Paul, Paul is aggressively seeking to lay hold of the prize himself. He presses toward the mark. And we must do the same. The way I'd put it is that Christians must act like victors. Now, I grew, up, I, I grew up in the 90s, and I grew up watching Michael Jordan play basketball. I grew up in Illinois. You know, Michael Jordan was one of the people I, I loved to watch. And, and you know, Michael Jordan was an incre- incredibly talented basketball player, but, but what set Michael Jordan apart was the fact that whenever Michael Jordan stepped on the basketball court, he believed that he was the best player there. He, kept, he stepped on the court with the intention to dominate every other athlete, and generally speaking, he did. He was the best basketball player. Now, now I'm not saying that we should be cocky, right? Michael Jordan's a cocky guy, all right? I'm not saying that we should be cocky because, because my confidence is not in me, right? My confidence is in Christ. I, I don't act like a victor because I'm so spiritual or because I'm better than the people around me. Now, now some Christians do that. All right, so, so they boast in, in their supposed godliness and their discipline. And, you know, we've probably all met people who, who set up false standards of holiness. And, you know, and they boast in the fact that they don't go here, they don't do this, and they wear this. And they're not generally boasting in the fact that they manifest the fruit of the Spirit. It's some false standard of holiness. And, and that's not what we're talking about here. That's Pharisaical legalism. So, so that's not, the point here is not that we're arrogant. We're, we're all weak sinners. And we better never forget that. Right? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So we need to be humble. But we also need to recognize the confidence that we can have in Christ. And it's because of Him that I am also dead to sin and alive to God. And, and knowing this, I should play the game intending by the grace of God to dominate and to be holy and to become like Christ. Sin is not going to reign. And so I should play that way. I will not obey it. Instead, by the grace of God, I will seek to press on and to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of me. So is that your approach to spiritual growth? Now, are you suspicious of yourself, but confident in Christ? And because of that, you are aggressively seeking to kill sin in your heart and to grow godliness. I mean, you, you don't live the Christian life limping around, you know, waiting to get crushed by the enemy. No. You are confident in the strength of Christ and you are playing to win because you believe that Christ has given you the power to do so. so. So Christian, resist sin's reign. It is dead in your heart. And so live that way. Fight it. Do not let sin reign. And then the second challenge comes in verse 13, which says, why this isn't, there we go, serve God with your life. So verse 13 says, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, 
But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, now once again, notice that this verse emphasizes the fact that we live out our faith in our bodies. So, so the members of our body in this verse would, would especially be your hands and your feet. Although other things could, could also be involved. And uh, like the previous verse, though, Paul is not just concerned with our bodies. Of course, uh, our, our bodies, our, our limbs, our hands and feet are deeply connected to our hearts. So, so the whole man is ultimately in view. But, but I believe that Paul here focuses on the members of our body because he wants us not just to think in theory. You know, Satan loves it when we, we talk about spiritual truth, we nod our heads, and we never actually get down to where it touches life. So, so he wants you to think very practically and very concretely about how you must apply your union with Christ all the way down to your hands and your feet. So, so sometimes, and that's good because sometimes we think, especially in our modern context, that as long as my heart is in the right place, it doesn't really matter where my feet go, what my hands touch, because my heart's in a good place. That's why you'll see Christians, for example, excuse watching explicit material in TV or in movies, and they'll say, well, they're not actually doing it, they're just acting, so it's okay. But, but their hands and their feet are actually doing things that are sinful. So it does matter where your feet go, what your hands touch, and what your eyes see. In fact, Paul says that the members of your body can be either instruments of unrighteousness or instruments of righteousness. And, and, and it's, it's significant there that the Greek word translated instruments actually would really more specifically and better be translated as weapons, like a sword or a bow or a spear. So, so what Paul is doing here is he's picturing our physical abilities, but by extension our minds and, and our hearts and, and everything about us, as weapons of war. And he's saying that you have a choice that you are constantly making. You can choose to employ these weapons for the cause of righteousness or the cause of unrighteousness. You can serve sin or you can serve God. And so with that in mind, God first commands us in, in verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, now that makes it sound as if he's telling them to stop. And I, I don't think it's actually best to, to understand this as meaning that we need to stop sitting. Because um, there's really no evidence that the Roman church was caught in some horrible pattern of disobedience. So, so the idea is really just simply that every Christian must constantly guard against becoming servants of sin and unrighteousness. I do not want to serve sin. And since Paul especially focuses on our bodies, I think the idea here is very similar to what he says later on in Romans chapter 13 verses 12 through 14. He says, Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ 
and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. So, so God there commands us not to use our bodies, and he mentions six sins that, that have to do with the body and then with the heart. You know, carousing, drunkenness, sexual promiscuity, sensuality. And it's interesting that he adds strife and jealousy to those first four. So, so we are to not feed those things. We are not to use our bodies for, for evil deeds. And, and then he ends by saying as well that we are not to make provision for the flesh. We are not to feed the flesh so that it becomes strong through our bodies and through our senses. So, so instead, we must lay hold of Christ. We must put on the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christian, you are dead to sin. So do not let Satan wield you or your body as a weapon of sin. Do not use your body, do not use your senses to feed ungodly passions in your heart. Watch what you listen to. Watch what you see. Watch where you go. Refuse to engage in sinful behavior. And drive sin out of your life. And as the song says, let no vice or sin remain that resists your holy war. Do not go down that path. And then notice, instead, the positive command at the end of verse 13. He says, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, now once again, notice the interplay in that verse between the indicative and the imperative. So so God doesn't merely command us here to do better, does He? No, he, 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 He has to come back again, even though He said it many, many times. He has to come back to the fact that we are alive from the dead. So, so he anchors the command in that truth. So, so I want to emphasize again, folks, that, that spiritual growth cannot simply be about me gritting my teeth and doing better. No. I need to swim in the sea of the gospel every day. I, I need to understand who I am in Christ what He has done for me, and the obligations that come with that. I need to understand where I'm headed. I'm headed to glory. Someday God is going to finish the process. And I need to always comprehend and always understand the the new life, the power I have in Him. And then I have to live actively relying on that strength to overcome sin. It's not just about me and temptation. It is about Christ in me fighting to live a godly life. So so the gospel must drive my pursuit of holiness. And with that background, I work to accomplish two closely related goals. So first of all, he says, present yourself to God. Present yourself to God. Now that reminds me, uh, it's very similar to what Paul is going to say in one of the most famous verses in the book. In Romans 12, verse 1. If you want to turn over there, Romans 12, verse 1 says to us, it says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. So so notice there's there's the indicative. I urge you by the mercies of God to present yourself. Same command as chapter 6, verse 13. To present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. 
So, so by the grace of God, I am to present myself and all that I am as a, as a sacrifice, a gift of love to God. Now, I want my whole life to please God. I want Him to be glorified. I want to worship Him is the idea in everything that I do. And then returning to chapter 6, verse 13, the second challenge he gives at the end of the verse is to uh, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, Now, the idea there is that you are to use your body, your mind, everything that you are, to pursue righteousness and godliness for His glory. I hope that is your passion. You know, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? I think you've been out out on a hike in the desert for a day. You've been working hard. You're tired. Your tongue is parched. You hunger for food. You thirst for water. Jesus says we are to hunger and thirst for righteousness. As Christians, we shouldn't be looking for excuses to be worldly. We should be longing for God to form righteousness in us. We should be pressing toward the mark. And Jesus says that that as someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, that pleases Him, right? That's the point of the Beatitudes, is these are things that please the Lord. God loves the Christian who hungers for righteousness. And what does he promise? You shall be satisfied. If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, Christ will form that righteousness in you. And someday, he will fully satisfy your heart when you are made righteous like he is. So Christian, you are alive from the dead. So so I want you to consider where you're not acting like it. Where are you acting like you are defeated when indeed you are transformed and you have the power for victory? What unrighteousness are you tolerating in your life? Are you a person of integrity? People can trust your word. You have strong work work ethic. You are faithful. And what about the fruit of the Spirit? Do love Joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control just just bleed out of your life because your heart is so full of, of Christ's work. Are you loving your neighbor well? You know, are you committed? Are you are you passionate not just to form righteousness in your heart, but you are working hard to see righteousness formed in your spouse, your kids, your parents, the people around you here at church? What are you doing to participate in the work of the Great Commission? A Christian, you are alive from the dead. So so remember that truth. And attack the Christian life by the grace of God, seeking to, to, to not present yourself to unrighteousness, but to give yourself to God and to live a righteous life that pleases Him and reflects what He has done in you. So, so use your life to serve God. And then the third challenge in this passage is think like a victor. Think like a victor. So so look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you. 
for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this verse rounds off the section by making a powerful and crucial statement for how we think about the Christian life. This is a very important verse. And it includes both a great promise and a wonderful basis for that promise. And, and I'd like to begin at the end with a basis and just use that to challenge us to appreciate the change that God has wrought. Again, he ends the passage by saying, you are not under law, but under grace. Now, that is a great statement. But unfortunately, it's probably among the most abused statements in the entire New Testament. And, uh, and, and some people, you know, I think just, you know, sometimes it's ignorance, sometimes it's laziness, but, but really just because people just grab a statement like that, they don't read it in context, they don't understand everything else that's going on, and, and as well, they're looking for an excuse to be spiritually lazy and worldly. They'll look at that statement and say, see, we're not under law. We're under grace. And, and so that means that, that I can basically do what I want to do and live the way I want to live. And, you know, so, so, so Christian, you know, just have a good time. Love Jesus and make sure you don't do anything too bad. But, but folks, they miss the fact that that can't not be what Paul means considering the context. Like with where we are in the study, we understand the first 13 verses of this passage. Life under grace cannot mean have a good time, live it up. I think other people who are a little bit more thoughtful will use this verse to say, well, see, sanctification does not happen through law. It happens through grace. And so what they take that to mean then is that they, well, they equate law with human effort, rules, convictions, striving after God. So they equate law with all that stuff, and then they equate grace with basically softness, right? So sometimes we think of a gracious person, you think of like, you know, you know, you know I'm sure this is none of you grandmas in this room, but you know, some grandma that, you know, grandkid can be like, you know, wailing on stuff and like, oh, she's so precious. Like, no, she's horrible. So, so that's how sometimes we think of grace. And so, and so law means effort. Grace means it's all good. And so we're not sanctified by law. We're sanctified by compassion. Blind compassion. But, but again, that, that cannot be what Paul means. All right? Because, because, because what those people have failed to do, when, when they, well, they've, under, they've misunderstood both law and grace, but, but they've really, in particular, they failed to read this passage in context. So, so look back at chapter 5, verse 20. Chapter 5, verse 20 says, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So you see there the contrast between law and grace. And what's important to recognize there is that the law in this passage is not talking about legalism. It's not talking about striving for holiness. It's not talking about rules and laws. No, the law there is what? It is the law of Moses. It's the age from Mount Sinai until the cross. So, so he's talking about a period of time in salvation history. The same goes for grace. Grace is not just... I mean, it's, it's a period of time. We, we call this the age of grace. The, the time from, from, 
from the resurrection of Christ and the founding of the church until the coming of Christ again. So, so it's a contrast between two ages in redemptive history. All right? Now, now I want to be clear here then that the law of Moses was good. So, so for those who were truly born again in the Old Testament, the law was not a drag. In fact, a, a born-again believer can say in Psalm 19, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. But, but not just right. He goes on to say, restoring the soul. So, so in the heart of someone who's born again, the law of God is a good thing. It's a refreshing because it brings you into knowledge, into the presence of the Lord. It shows you how to honor Him and how to glorify Him in your life. But, but really what's going on here in Romans chapter 5 and 6 is Paul is specifically thinking of those who are not born again. And chapter 5 verse 20 says that for those who are not born again, those who are still dead in sin, the law only functions to increase sin. And that's because if you're not saved, all the law does is tell you what sin is. But if you're dead in sin, that's not very helpful because you can't actually obey it. So for example, you know, let's suppose that tomorrow morning you're trying to get to work, you've got an important meeting you've got to get to, and while you're driving down the road, you have a flat tire. And for whatever reason, you don't have a spare, you don't have a jack, and you don't have a wrench. And so you're stuck, and so you call me to come help you out. And so I drive over there as quick as I can. I park behind you. I pull up and you're staying there by your car. You're frustrated. And I, I begin to lecture you on all the proper things to do in changing a tire. You know, I make sure you know how to do it safely and cautiously and carefully. And, and I give you a, a nice long spiel about how to properly change a tire. But, but if I don't bring along a spare, a jack, and a wrench, all my instruction is useless. I mean, it's, it's worthless if you don't actually have the power to, to do the job. And, and what Paul has said, and what we're going to continue to see as we work through Romans, is that where the law is that's where the law left the unbeliever. It told someone who is spiritually dead, this is what you must do to please God. But it didn't give him the capacity to actually do it. But thankfully, chapter 5, verse 20, and chapter 6, verse 14 declare that we no longer live under the age of law. We live in the age of grace. And the point of the age of grace is not that the grace of God is, is just you know senile compassion. The point of the grace of God is that we have power. When you read, the grace, when you read grace there, think power. Don't think you know, anything goes. So we live in the age of grace. And, and the difference between these ages is not that one demanded a high standard and the other anything goes. The difference is, is that we don't just know what God's will is. We have the capacity, the power in Christ to do it. So that's the point of verse 14b. So, so the age of grace stands out for the fact that we are, in, we are now dead to sin but alive to God. And Christ empowers us to overcome sin in a way that the law never could. So, so grace is not freedom to do whatever I want to do. To be apathetic and careless in my Christian life. No, grace is the power to overcome sin and to enjoy the beauty of the holiness of God. 
And so there's never been a better time to be alive. Never has been there, there been a better time to be alive than in the age of grace, where we have Christ in us, strengthening us to serve Him. And in light of that change, we must apply the change. So, so verse 14a has to be one of the most encouraging promises in all of Scripture. God says, sin shall not be master over you. Now, to be very clear, that is not hallmark power of positive thinking type of thing. You know, we, we live in a day where, you know, we, we tend to think if I believe it enough, I can will it into existence. And that's not what he's saying, right? That's not what he's saying. No. Verse 9 said that Jesus rose from the dead, and because he rose from the dead, death is no longer master over him. And therefore, because death is no longer master over Jesus, Paul can come back in verse 14 and say that, that death or that sin will not be master. Same verb, it will not be master over us either. We are dead to sin because Jesus is alive to God. Now, of course, the truth is that we don't always feel that way, do we? And sometimes we, we have a hard time locating in our life the truth of that statement, that sin will not be master of us. And, and there's a variety of reasons for that. You know, the reality is, is that many people come to Christ with lots of significant baggage. They've built up years of sin habits. And maybe they grew up in an abusive environment where, where there were just things put in front of them that, that make holiness more difficult than it otherwise would be. The reality is as well, at times we, we, we have natural weaknesses. And then of course, going back to Romans 13 verse 14, sometimes we just make provision for the flesh. We feed ungodliness all the time. And then it grows and, and the flesh becomes increasingly strong. And so oftentimes we, we look at a statement like that and rather than being encouraging, it's discouraging because we're like, man, I am being slaughtered by sin. I'm not mastering it. But, but folks, every Christian ultimately will make progress. Sin will not be your master in the ultimate sense. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, and, all right, and again, that's talking about his work of, of transformation that will culminate climax in, in glorification. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began this good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. So God will convict of sin. He will change you, and He will continue that process until the day that you see Christ and you are perfectly glorified, you are perfectly conformed to the image of His Son. So, so that is true. I am a victor. Even though I am already a victor, even though I am not yet perfect. But the point of, of, chapter, of verse 14 is to say that I have to think like a victor. You know, again, going back to basketball analogy, you know, you don't, you don't walk out on the court. You're just waiting to be humiliated, hoping not to get too embarrassed. No. I mean, we should play the Christian life, so to speak, like we are the best athlete on the court. And so wake up in the morning, not expecting spiritual defeat or not resigning to it or not like, well, 
You know, you know what time do I get my snow cone? But thinking, I'm going to attack. I'm going to fight. By the grace of God, I'm going to be victorious. You play to win. And you don't do that because you are arrogant, but because you trust in the power of Christ. So, so Christian, live out your death to sin. You know, I mean, that, that, that change in how you think is so crucial to spiritual victory. It is so crucial. And again, it's not just power of positive thinking, you know, j- mumbo-jumbo. It is true, it is real, and we have to apply it. So, so in conclusion, verse 1 asks again, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And verse 14 ends Paul's first answer to that question by saying, absolutely not. To continue in sin is to miss the very intent of the age of grace, which is to end sin's mastery. So so rejoice in what Jesus has done. And then by God's grace, live it out every single day. Of course, course I also just want to emphasize that, that all of this has to begin with a genuine relationship to the Lord. Because you can't actually live out this passage if you are not truly united to Christ in salvation. So this chapter is only true for those who know Christ. So, so how can you know Christ? How can you be united to Him? Well, John 1, verse 12, answers the question when it says, as many as received Him, speaking of Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name. So you can receive Jesus by, by just believing, and, and really, you, know, you have two parallel thoughts, receiving Him and believing Him. You can receive Jesus by believing that He is the Lord. That He died for your sins, He rose in victory, that His salvation is sufficient. And so you believe those things and you receive Him. You enter a relationship with Jesus that, that brings forgiveness of all your sins, that changes your eternity and that transforms your life today. So so receive Christ, and you can come to know the life-transforming and all-satisfying goodness of our God. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for the truths of this passage. And Father, I pray that if there's any here who do not know Jesus as Savior, that today they would repent of their sins, that they would receive Christ and be born again. And Lord, for those of us who know You as Savior, I pray that we would live every day in, in, the, in the indicatives of this passage. Lord, I'm sure there's some in this room that are discouraged in their struggle, feeling defeated, weighed down. Others have grown apathetic and careless. But Father, I pray that we would remember who we are in Christ and why it is that you saved us. And I pray that by the grace of God, we would not let sin reign, but that we would present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead and servants of Christ. And so God, help us this week to to remember 
who we are and to fight in the strength that you provide. And God, I pray that you would give victory. I pray that you would keep us from temptation. I pray that you would, your Spirit would put the truth of Scripture deeper and deeper into our hearts. And I pray that by your grace, you would transform us and mold us into the image of the Son. And so, Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the wonderful truths of the gospel behind it. In Jesus' name, amen.